You're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. And one of my favorite comments on one of our videos in the past was that the intro music to this show slaps. And I agree, it oh, does yeah. slap. Every time Kale plays it, I'm just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I'm feeling it, I'm feeling it. You know what slaps <laughs> is the new animation on the intro. Did anyone else notice that? Because I did. That was some slick, slick work from the Jacobin graphics department. Whomever, congratulations. Yeah, definitely. I absolutely love it. Um, so, Nando, we have a fantastic show ahead for our audience today. We're going to talk to Richard Seymour, um, who's the author of The Twittering Machine. So we're going to have an in-depth discussion about all of the ramifications of uh, the social industry, as he refers to it, under this capitalistic structure. I'm really looking forward to that conversation because it goes beyond um, some of the shallow uh, conversations that you see that don't address... Yeah. The incentive structure for why, um, you know, the social industry is so dramatically bad for our lives. Um, but, you know, yeah. I also want to challenge some of the, you know, it's not I don't think it's necessarily all bad. Right. There are upsides to social media. And I want to, you know, challenge him on that a little bit. Um, <laughs> and then in our salt segment, do you want to do you want to tease that a little bit for our audience? Oh, yeah. Um, well, we have a coronavirus vaccine. We have a few coronavirus vaccines. Those, that's very exciting, uh, exciting, obviously. But um, as you can imagine, the rich world, meaning the United States, Europe, uh, things like that, are going to hoard it and screw over the global south uh, through a combination of patent law, just, you know, not not distributing the vaccine widely and cheaply and openly um, because we still live in a for-profit system and nothing nothing happens unless there is profits to be made and uh, the the victims of that tend to be the weak the poor uh, the global south so yeah yeah absolutely well um, I thought we would open the show today. Uh, I know I'm kind of surprising you with this. We didn't prepare for it in any way. Um, I'm wearing hey, a TMBS sweater <laughs> that I love. Um, Michael Brooks' sister, Leisha Brooks, sent this to me, and I'm so grateful that she did. And I wanted to kind of reflect on something that I was talking about yesterday with a friend regarding kindness and what kind of impact uh, Michael Brooks had on my handling of political conflict or political debates mm. and discussions and I didn't really, it didn't really crystallize until I had this conversation yesterday because this is going to sound weird, but the way that Michael would converse about certain topics, like, led to a softness in my personality that I didn't have before. And the best way to describe it is the anger that you feel toward inequality, the anger that you feel toward Trump supporters, for instance, um, and conspiracy theorists and some of the more unsavory people online. How do you handle that conversation? Like, what's the best way to talk about these situations? Does it make sense to, let's say, use a video of a Trump supporter who's otherwise a private citizen saying incredibly embarrassing things? Like, does it make yeah. sense to cover that and just ridicule that person and essentially bully them because you obviously disagree with them. And Michael really tried to stay away from that kind of content. And yeah. he had a good reason why, because what we're supposed to be doing in our work, at least, and I genuinely believe this, otherwise I would not be doing this uh, as a profession. We're supposed to try to persuade people to join us. 
right? And so some might argue that Trump supporters are too far gone. There's no way you're going to persuade them. But think about people who aren't immersed in, you know, political content, political conversations, political research. They, they, you know, casually read an article here or there. But if they come across one of our videos and they see us saying pretty horrendous things about someone that we disagree with, well, are we going to do anything to persuade them to join us? And yeah. I don't think we will. And so I just, I just wanted to reflect on that. And I'm so, yeah. I don't know if, if I have like the right um, perspective based on my conversations with Michael, but it feels right. And I'm grateful that uh, he had that kind of impact on my life. Yeah. And actually I just, uh, this way yeah, I framed my, my girlfriend got, see it right there, right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leisha Brooks sent me a very beautiful note and uh, I got it framed because it was just, it was both sad and funny and, 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 and a perfect, just like a very perfect uh, note in so many ways. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, Michael always said, I mean, and it was a mantra that he repeated all the time is be kind to people and ruthless with systems, right? Um, you have to do a power analysis of any issue or situation or anything. And you have to reflect on where is power, who has it, and how do they wield it? And if you don't do that and you just dunk on someone who has no real power, um, then what are you doing? I mean, you know, I Mm -hmm. get that it's cathartic to watch those like Jordan Klepler videos where he goes to like a Trump rally and makes them all look really stupid. You know, like that. Yeah. I mean, I I can see why that that's funny and stuff like that. But there is no real politics to that. Um, There is no um, that is just that is just it's entertainment, right? It's entertainment for entertainment's sake. Yeah. Yeah. And, There's no strategy yeah, behind it. No strategy behind it, and you know, and 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 Michael was always very um, disciplined in his analysis. That it really, I mean, I mean, he was a he was a pretty he was a pretty doctrinaire Marxist, as I am, in which, like, you know, it's about capital and labor, and so things like, for example, um, I, I think about like how Michael would have reacted to something like the Jeffrey Tubin thing, um, and whether he would have like joined the chorus of like everyone dunking on him and and saying he should be fired like michael would have recognized that as like a a a labor issue and not not he wouldn't like he wouldn't like necessarily say like jeffrey tubin was good or anything like that that's not important what's important is 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 the bigger principle behind it and like whether whether he deserves to be fired like michael would always say like it takes a lot for me to call for someone for someone to like be separated from their livelihood like they'd have to be like right. to do something like truly, 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 and the bar is just like so high that that it you know because he recognizes that ultimately power uh, is that's where it lies, and if if you don't kind of um, build solidarity along class lines, then you're doomed. As as we're we're all doomed. Like the planet's gonna cook. All that stuff. Like you know all the. All the things that we talk about as like, you know, the impending crises, like if they will happen and they will destroy us unless there is a uh, class based solidarity, because that is the only thing that's going to that's going to save us. And he he understood that very well. So. So, yeah, I mean, dunking on regular people uh, is 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 just pointless. Dunking on near attendant. That's fun. And that is good yeah. politics. 
<laughs> Again, I mean, it's it's all about power. You're absolutely right. I love that you use that word because this isn't to say like never, never dunk on anyone, never call anyone stupid. No, there are people in positions of power who um, intentionally push out disinformation and manipulate people, uh, you know, who, who, of course, have corrupt motives, which I talked about in great detail when it comes to Neera Tandon and others. Uh, but when it comes to ordinary people, again, I mean, I, I really feel... I feel like I'm a product of what Michael preached about, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie. Other leftists turn me off immediately because they come <laughs> at me or come at others with this hyper judgmental rhetoric. Yeah. And yeah. when you do that, you turn people away. And Michael didn't do that. There wasn't a moment no. of judgment. There wasn't a moment of, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not smart enough to comprehend this. Oh my God, you don't understand how capitalism works. None of that. It was just calm, casual discussions about various issues. And he made good points. He was persuasive. And I realized he was right about a lot of things. And so <laughs> I want to apply that strategy to the work that I do. And so, um, again, I'm grateful that I had that experience. Yeah. You don't come across people who have such a big impact and influence on, on your life and how you carry out your profession. And so, yeah. um, you know, just wanted to give them a big shout out um, and definitely check out uh, TMBS. They're doing a, a tribute series right now, and it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. His sister, Alicia, is doing such a great job producing all of that. So please check yeah. that out. Yeah. Yeah. All righty. Well, should we uh, should we pay the bills? Let's do it. Let's pay our bills. All righty. Well, as you know, people... You can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. To celebrate 50 years of radical publishing, each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. In December, Verso also, also selected the best books published from this year's plus comrades will get their brand new comrade canvas tote bag. How, how, I haven't gotten mine yet. I need it. The comrade tier is $20 a month. And if you join in December, you'll get burn it down feminist manifestos for the revolution edited by Brian Faz. Long live the post horn by Vigdis Hjorth called the best post office novel ever written by the New York times. Wow. Even the New York times. Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula by Laleh Khalili. The Verso Book of Descent, Revolutionary Words from Three Millennia of Rebellion and Resistance, plus the Verso tote bag with Comrade in elongated black type on the front and the Verso logo on the back. It's I love Verso that baby. bag. It's very you nice. It? You've huh? gotten yours? You've gotten no, yours? No, no, no. I haven't gotten mine. No, not yet. But I love you that just bag. You saw the picture. It's such a yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's so good looking. Yeah. yeah, gotta you know, just because you're on the left doesn't mean you can't be fly. You know, no, you gotta you be can fly. look good. That was that was yeah. another lesson that that was another thing that Michael and I talked about all the time, all the time. Yeah, he would like ask me like, hey, do you think it's like you know they think this shirt is cool or something? You know, and I'd be like, yeah, it's cool. You know, <laughs> it's funny. My so my uh, my husband was like. If you're gonna wear that sweater, you obviously have to wear a gold chain. But I don't have yeah, one, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you don't have a gold chain. Anyway, oh, man. I don't. Yeah. I don't. And he doesn't have one. He's Cuban. Cubans He's a have Cuban to have from Miami. Gold chains. Like they're like born with it. It's like <laughs> yeah. they're born with chest hair and a gold chain when they're little infants. <laughs> totally, totally. 
All right. Well, um, let's get to our decode segments, uh, because today I actually want to talk about the issue of representation, something that we've been hearing quite a bit about, uh, especially when it comes to oh, Biden's yeah. cabinet. But there's one group of people that it doesn't that doesn't seem to get any representation. Mm. In fact, they're dissuaded from uh, representing working people, people living in poverty. And yeah. it's definitely an issue as more and more Americans slip into poverty during this pandemic. So let's get to it. It's not only extremely rare to find American politicians who want to represent the best interests of working Americans. When it comes to corporate media, it's even rarer. And nothing made that clearer than how Stephanie Rule handled her interview with Bernie Sanders on the topic of poverty during the pandemic. Watch. The American people, the working people are now experiencing unemployment high. We have a record level of hunger in America. Millions of people are facing evictions. This is an emergency. Congress has got to respond aggressively to help working families. You know, Stephanie, I always get a kick. Here in Washington, when we go to war, there's endless amounts of money. Tax breaks for billionaires, endless amounts of money. Corporate welfare, endless amounts of money. When children are going hungry in America today, suddenly we don't have enough money. That's crap. That's wrong. And if we have got to stay here throughout Christmas, which is the last thing in the world that I would want to do, we are going to stay here because we are going to make sure that struggling working families in this country get the help they desperately need. Senator, I'm not agreeing with you fundamentally, but I want to talk to you practically. You've been the lead sponsor of 422 bills during your 30 years in Congress, but only seven of them have become law. Given that record and how dire things are, as you just laid out, do you need to find another lane or take a different approach here? Now, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that someone who worked in the financial industry for 14 years would handle the interview the way that she did. Uh, it's laughable that people like Stephanie Rule prance around as so-called journalists when in reality, their worldview couldn't be further than what average Americans, average people are facing and experiencing on a daily basis. She does not represent them. She doesn't actually do journalism to cover them appropriately. And, you know, in 1997, for instance, uh, she joined Credit Suisse where she spent six years working in hedge fund sales. Eventually, uh, she was the vice president of Credit Suisse First Boston, uh, where she became the highest producing credit derivative salesperson in the United States. Then she went on to work for Donald Trump's dumbest lender, Deutsche Bank. And of course, her career culminated with a hosting shot over at MSNBC, where uh, she spreads disinformation about the realities that poor people are facing in this country. But I'd love to answer her question about why Bernie Sanders supposedly was not successful in the bills that he proposed uh, during his political career. It's because the economic identities of most congressional lawmakers, individuals that he is supposed to negotiate and work with, are nothing like the identities of people that they're supposed to be representing. And if you're wondering, what am I talking about? This video will explain it for you a little bit. It turns out for the first time in U.S. history, the majority of its lawmakers are millionaires. In 2012, of the 535 members of Congress, 268, or more than half, had a net worth of more than a million dollars. That's up more than 4% from the previous recorded year. What we're losing are people who will feel an obligation to speak for the working class and the lower middle class and the poor because 
fewer and fewer people in Congress know what it's like to actually be poor. So hunger during this pandemic has been absolutely devastating to the point where shoplifting has gone up. But people aren't shoplifting electronics and televisions or anything like that. They're shoplifting bread, pasta, and items for their children, which demonstrates how desperate this situation is getting as Congress fails to pass another round of stimulus. It's really bad. And again, I want to reemphasize just how wealthy members of Congress are. That's a lot, because when you think about the rest of the population, only about 3% of us can call ourselves millionaires. And look who has all the money in Congress. Leading the list is Daryl Issa from California, a Republican with a net worth of $464 million. You can go to Virginia to find the top Democrat, Mark Warner, $257 million. And another Democrat is in third, Jared Polis from Colorado with $197 million. Mm, That's a lot of white men. What about women? When are women going to get represented in Congress? This is wrong. Okay. As a woman, I demand to see other females in Congress and preferably, you know, females who have a ton of money and a vested interest in deregulation and pro-corporate policy. So um, that list was actually from 2014. Why don't we look at current times to see where Congress stands when it comes to their wealth? So don't worry, ladies, we got that representation we so desperately wanted with Kelly Loeffler. Senator Kelly Loeffler, or Leffler, however you pronounce her name, um, is estimated to be worth more than $500 million. And if that's the case, Leffler is by far the wealthiest member of Congress. And remember, um, she was essentially uh, appointed in that position as senator. She was not elected. She is running in um, a re-election bid in Georgia, as we all know, um, and hopefully she gets voted out. But she is followed by other members of Congress, including Senator Rick Scott, who's worth $259 million, Senator Mark Warner, $214 million, and Representative Greg uh, Gianfort, $180 $89 million. So is it really surprising that our congressional lawmakers are unwilling to work with Bernie Sanders to pass economic policies that would at least help address the issue of inequality in America? Is it surprising that they failed to reach another stimulus package at a time when Americans are desperate for financial relief? And really, we should be calling it financial relief because so many people right now are worried about eviction. They're worried about putting food on the table for themselves and their families. They're worried about their livelihoods, and they've been abandoned by these millionaires who have no interest in actually representing them. And we don't have discussions about proper representation for working Americans. We do have representation about aesthetics. We do have conversations about what we need to do to have Diversity, for instance, in Congress, in government, and to be sure, diversity is important. I do believe that our elected leaders and members of the federal government and the executive branch should at least reflect the diversity that we see here in the United States. The point of this story, the point of this decode segment is to point to the fact that what our elected leaders are doing right now is they're just simply tokenizing representation as opposed to implementing diversity, 
with the policies and with the ideologies that actually do represent working Americans. And so, yes, I've been thinking about representation quite a bit lately, especially when it comes to Joe Biden's cabinet. Now, um, he's been pressured quite a bit um, in order to uh, represent various groups of people, whether it's women, um, the African-American community. He's also getting pressure from the Asian community as well. Uh, but again, I want to emphasize this is the community that needs rep- representing. Over the past decade, average household incomes have declined, while rents have been rising. And that's pushing more and more people, like Carla Powers, to the edge. So what happened to you today? Um, I was at work. I worked two full-time jobs. I'm trying. It's a struggle, and it's real, and it's, and it's hard. Seriously, yes. How hard has it been to find housing out here? That horrible. You it's freaking horrible. Yeah. And that's how I ended up in this slum. I didn't want to be here. Um, I... I didn't want to be here. I don't have horrible credit. You know what I'm saying? But it's just hard. In Dallas and elsewhere, we kept hearing how the largest of the programs, Section 8 vouchers, covers just a fraction of those in need. Section 8 applications. Thousands of residents have been fighting for a chance to get public housing assistance. When the vouchers are handed out, the response is overwhelming. Chaos this morning in the parking lot as tempers flared over the city's plan to hand out the Section 8 applications. Some people been here since Sunday morning, Monday morning. It's ridiculous. The voucher pays the difference between the monthly rent and what renters can afford. More than 2 million households use them, but wait lists can be years long. So who is demanding that Biden appoint or nominate cabinet members who actually genuinely want to address that issue? And as you can see from that video, that was a pretty diverse group of people. And as we know from statistics, poverty disproportionately impacts people of color in the United States. Simply nominating someone who happens to be a person of color doesn't go far enough in representing the best interests of these communities unless they actually identify with and want to address the economic frustrations and concerns that these people are having, the actual real-world experiences these people are having. Simply having the aesthetics of change is not enough. And, uh, of course, we get, in my opinion, goofball stories that have excerpts like the one I'm about to read. And, of course, people are going to get upset that I'm going to read this and refer to it. But I think you're going to get my point at least. So the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus, um, known as uh, CAPAC, pointed out in a statement that this could be the first time since the Clinton administration that Asian American and Pacific Islander uh, Islanders can be shut out from occupying a secretary role in the executive cabinet, a development the lawmakers called unacceptable. Okay, that's fine. I'm definitely open to having as diverse a cabinet as humanly possible. But are all Asians the same? Are all black people the same? Are all Mexicans the same? Is everyone the same in, in any group? So can we have a discussion about who's qualified? Can we have a discussion about specific people and how they would significantly benefit the lives of Americans? Or are we just simply having a conversation about a job grab within Biden's cabinet? It's ridiculous because the conversation is shallow and does not address real concerns that Americans are facing right now. 
Anyway, uh, while it is laudable to have an executive branch that reflects the diversity of the United States, oftentimes these nominees do fall short of actually representing the best interests of the people they purport to relate to. Take Avril Haines, for example, a woman who is now the first woman, actually, to be nominated for Director of National Intelligence. Fantastic. Now, as a woman, um, am I excited that there's a woman nominated for this position? Honestly, I don't really care, but I know that a lot of women do. But how about we take a look at her record as someone who's going to have such an incredibly important role uh, within the intelligence community? First of all, she was the architect behind Obama's disastrous drone policy, which killed an estimated, and I know this is an underestimate, of 542 civilians. 542 civilians dead as a result of Obama's uh, drone policy, which again, Avril Haines was the architect of. She also vouched for Gina Haspel, um, who has been accused of attempting to cover up CIA torture. And, uh, you know, I want to read you her statement about Gina Haspel. She had said in 2018 when uh, Donald Trump had nominated her, Gina Haspel is intelligent, compassionate, and fair. Gina has an unparalleled understanding of the institution, the agency's work, and she will support the workforce, all attributes the agency needs as its director. Yes, but how about the fact that she tried to destroy evidence regarding CIA torture, which was illegal? Um, what about the fact that she was totally on board with CIA torture? Does that matter? No. Does it matter that Avril Haines, again, a woman, fantastic, was supportive of this kind of stuff? I guess it doesn't. I guess we're not allowed to have an in-depth look at what these people genuinely represent. She also engaged in other questionable work. Um, Haynes has in the past described herself as a former consultant for the controversial data mining firm Planeteer. Haynes' Haynes's biography page at the Brookings Institute, where she is listed as a non-resident senior fellow, boasted of this affiliation until last week when it suddenly no longer appeared on the page. Oh, that's really weird. Why? I mean, why... Why would she brag about that in the past? And then all of a sudden it's gone. It's deleted from the Brookings Institute page. Well, uh, co-founded by the far right, Trump supporting tech billionaire Planeteer, uh, whose business has benefited from a slew of government contracts, has been accused of aiding in the Trump administration's immigration detention programs in the United States and helping the Trump administration build out its surveillance state. But it's okay. We can forget about all of that. Because she's a woman. And so since she's a woman, of course, she's going to do more uh, to represent the best interests of women in this country, right? Or abroad. Yeah, I doubt it. And to be fair, she's not the only female member of the Democratic Party who loves to support the military, uh, the military and the surveillance state. Um, if you go back to Congress for a moment, uh, some news broke this week regarding uh, Kirsten Sinema, who is a Democrat. Uh, and how she's definitely in cahoots with Donald Trump in regard to the sale of weapons, as was tweeted recently. Arizona Democrat uh, Cinema and Kelly vote to pass Trump's huge arms deal for the UAE, breaking with their party and ensuring the package will survive the Senate. And I love the responses to it. Uh, one person responded with, Glad that we have moved past old men with white hair selling arms to dictatorships to bisexual women in purple wigs selling arms to dictatorships. One other person commented, we're going to bomb the shit out of countries, but with a diverse cabinet. Fantastic. 
Now, Biden also nominated General uh, Lloyd Austin as his secretary of defense, which is definitely a problem because uh, he retired pretty recently in 2016, less than seven years ago. Now, uh, as CNN reported, Austin would need a congressional waiver to be confirmed for the civilian post because he retired from active duty service only four years ago. Federal law requires seven years of retirement from active duty before taking on the role. Yeah, but whatever. I mean, who cares? Uh, Sure, he was in the military not long ago. And also, after he left the military, he went on to work for Raytheon, one of the weapons manufacturers and private contractors that uh, has literally a vested interest in more war abroad, endless wars that we're already engaged in. Uh, But Michael Eric Dyson doesn't care. He thinks that Lloyd's fantastic because he's black. So let's let's take a look at what he has to say. This defense secretary thing is big with uh, General Michael Austin. What do you think? Oh, it's it's beautiful. Look, have you ever heard a president say before, I owe you, I owe you a debt. You hook me up. I'm hooking you up. I've never heard a president. I've studied presidential rhetoric. I've studied president's interactions with black America. I've never heard that. And so the attempt to follow up and to follow through by President-elect Joe Biden uh, is worthy of note. No discussion about uh, the issues with General uh, Austin uh, serving in the military not long ago. No discussion about the fact that he worked uh, for Raytheon. None of that. No discussion about how his vested interests in the military-industrial complex would negatively impact black men in this country, black soldiers who are forced to go fight in these wars and risk their lives. No analysis on that. It's all about the aesthetics of change. And that is a problem because it gets sold off as this idea of reform, this idea of creating a better country and a better world. But there's a reason why the foreign policy of Barack Obama was very similar to the foreign policy of George W. Bush. In fact, Barack Obama expanded on that foreign policy. He expanded with drone strikes, the same drone strikes I was talking about earlier, where hundreds of civilians died abroad. And so, again, you can have both things. You can have diversity, which, again, I want to reiterate is important, but the proper representation that's tied with that diversity But when Joe Biden had an opportunity to actually implement that idea, he actually passed it up. So civil rights leaders um, and lawmakers like Representative Jim Clyburn were rooting for Representative Marsha Fudge to be nominated for the agriculture secretary. And she would actually be a great pick. Um, Not only is she African-American, she also fought hard to ensure that we avoided cuts to the food stamp program. She also fought incredibly hard to ensure uh, that there was a better agricultural system and setup to protect black rural farmers. These are important issues, and I think she would be absolutely fantastic for that role. Um, But as the uh, Intercept reported, Biden decided to pass her up, and he went with uh, Tom Vilsack, who was the agriculture secretary under Barack Obama. They report, whereas Fudge represented an opportunity to unite the USDA's rural and urban constituents and address the agency's long history of racial discrimination, Vilsack is a rerun of pro-corporate policies that continue to drive rural communities away from the Democratic Party. And look, this is intentional. 
This is absolutely intentional. Maybe I'm being too cynical in saying that or thinking that, but there's a reason why Joe Biden chose to to put someone like Representative Fudge, who would be a fighter for the things that we need, in a in a completely different position, and so Biden instead, of course, decided to nominate her um, for Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, which is interesting because just last month she told Politico, "As this country becomes more and more diverse, we're going to have to stop looking at only certain agencies as those that people like me fit in. You know, it's always we want to put the black person in labor or HUD." Oops. And look, this kind of thinking unfortunately impacts well-meaning people as well. And one of the latest examples of that is how Anthony Fauci communicated the efficacy and the safe, the safety of the vaccine, the coronavirus vaccine for, um, I think, reasonably skeptical um, black Americans. And so here's how he addressed that issue. Dr. Kizmekia Corbett or Kizzy Corbett. Kizzy is an African-American scientist who is right at the forefront of the development of the vaccine. So the first thing you might want to say to my African-American brothers and sisters is that the vaccine that you're going to be taking was developed by an African-American woman. And that is just a fact. I mean, that is a fact. And I think that's some of the things that people don't fully appreciate. I think the messaging has to go beyond identity or the identity of who developed the vaccine to persuade people of its safety and efficacy. And when we get wrapped up in these superficial surface level discussions about identity, I think we miss the point. I think we fail to address issues and concerns that people legitimately have. And, um, Look, Biden's closest staffer, someone who he's worked with since the early 90s, is Cynthia Hogan. And she uh, has been working for Apple ever since uh, the Obama administration's uh, second term ended. She was a lobbyist for Apple, and she fought aggressively to ensure that Donald Trump's tax cuts for the wealthy would pass. Because, of course, those tax cuts, which cut the corporate tax rate, significantly benefited Apple's bottom line. And if she's one of his closest staffers, will we see proper representation of Americans who are slipping deeper and deeper into poverty right now when we have this system of redistributing wealth from the bottom to the top? And uh, look, the only person that I've seen so far address the issue of representation for progressive ideas was Katie Turr. She's also on MSNBC, and she asked Bernie this question. Do you feel like there's been enough progressive representation in Joe Biden's cabinet picks? Well, as I have said many times, um, the progressive movement in this country uh, is a very significant part of the Democratic coalition. I know some of the folks in the Democratic establishment don't want to recognize it, but that is a fact. Uh, And in truth, if it wasn't for the hard work of a lot of progressive grassroots organizations who got young people involved in the political process, working class people involved in a way that we have not seen, uh, Joe Biden would not have won that election. And I think uh, that's pretty clear. And uh, my point has been from day one uh, that uh, those voices, that movement uh, deserves representation uh, in the cabinet. Uh, and if your question is, have I seen that yet? Uh, no, I have not. 
There is one person that I will point to uh, who seems to be a promising nominee. Now, the question is, will he get confirmed? And that's uh, California's current attorney general, Javier Becerra, who has uh, been a fighter for Medicare for all. Uh, He has certainly fought against austerity in the past when he was a member of the House. Um, And he also uh, has fought against any type of cuts uh, to Social Security, any type of cuts to uh, taxes for the rich. He seems promising. But if you listen to the rhetoric in the media about the possibility of him serving as the HHS secretary, they seem pretty terrified, which makes me think that there is an intentional effort to avoid proper representation for Americans, for working Americans and Americans who are experiencing the the downsides, the brunt, all of the issues associated with this pandemic. And that's pretty terrifying because for everyone who was concerned about the toxicity and the disastrous policies coming from the Trump administration, if we have another Obama-Biden administration 2.0 or Biden-Obama administration 2.0, considering all of the cabinet picks who are just going to be recycled for this administration, it really does set the stage for someone who could possibly be worse than Trump, but more importantly, savvier than Trump. So it's just something to think about as these incredibly superficial conversations about representation happen in the mainstream media, in the corporate media. We need to ask, okay, if they represent the way people look in America, do they represent the best interests of people in America? And so far, I think the answer is no. Yeah, I mean, I... um... The more I think about it and as I get older, I turn against this kind of thing harder and harder. I have like zero patience for it. Like, I mean, Kirsten Sinema is a perfect example of of this. I mean, she was a she was an anti-war activist uh, during the Iraq war. I mean, that's how she kind of came up in politics. Um, She is also bisexual. And by the time she got elected to the Senate, she she had already kind of like disavowed all her previous um, anti-war activism. She 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 came in as one of the most conservative Democrats, probably maybe the most conservative uh, senator after uh, Joe Manchin. And, um, yeah. and 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 but like when she got elected, people were like all uh, yes, queening her because she was the first bisexual member of the Senate. Yeah. And her like swearing in ceremony, she like wore a good outfit or something. And, and like there were, and I remember thinking like, what is this? Like, yeah, Christian Sinema swearing in was a bold queer statement. It's like, okay, so she can, so she can vote for uh, intersectional uh, drone strikes uh, by selling arms to the UAE. You know what I mean? Like by breaking with her party to do that. Like what's the, what's the point of any of this? Um, And like, there's, there's been like hilarious things I mean, in, in a dark way with this with this kind of weird um, identitarian uh, struggle for Biden and cabinet positions, because like you see someone like Susan Rice, who is a black woman and who is awful. But to the extent that she does have expertise, I mean, she does have legitimate, quote unquote, expertise in something. It's in foreign policy and foreign affairs. Yeah. She was Obama's U.N. Uh, uh, ambassador to the U.N. Uh, Biden names her to the Domestic Policy Council. Council, like it's in, insane. What? It's insane. You know, but yeah. they were like running low. They were like they had they didn't have enough black women, so uh, let's just shove her in there uh, and see. Uh, you know what I mean? And and just like 
and get rid, shut up all those people that are that are up in arms about this kind of thing. You know, it's just it's one hundred percent cynical. It has been used as it has absolutely been primarily used as a weapon against the left, as a weapon against egalitarian universal programs, which are seen or are slandered as somehow proto-racist because they're not like race specific in some way um because they would help uh racist trump supporters uh things like that like that is absolutely a what like this the representation identity thing has been used as a very effective weapon to um stamp down discontent and to destroy uh the left and i just have like no patience for it anymore yeah, and look, I, I'm sure people will disagree with me on that. I can only speak for myself on this as a woman. I find it incredibly insulting when the conversation is, we need a woman in this position, right? It's not, it's not even a discussion about who the woman is, whether she'd be yeah. qualified to do the job. I, we're not a monolith. We're no. not all qualified for the same things. And it's just this tokenizing um, that it really insults me. I hate it. Uh, and yeah. so I, I want genuine equality. Um, I want to be able to compete with my male peers and prove that I do a better job and get the position. That's the way I want to do it. Um, and I don't want to get anything. I mean, nothing's been handed to me because I, you know, work on the left, but you yes. get what I'm saying? Like it's, it's not yeah, a yeah. good feeling to know that you got the upper hand because of the, yeah superficial identity rhetoric that's taking place right now. And it is used in, in so many cynical ways. And it just, it, it, it does, it's very counterproductive because it plays into this idea of dividing and conquering, um, you know, especially yeah. with what you referred to with uh, universal programs and how they seem to be against it. And, and back to like the discussion of Michael at the beginning of the show, like I understand why a lot of regular people kind of buy into this kind of thing. You know, I understand why people um, would love to like love to see, you know, people who look like them in positions of power and, you know, at the Oscars ceremony and things like that. Um, I understand that genuine impulse, but it's been used and weaponized by the people in power against those people, against their own interests. You know, so it, it's just it's it's fundamentally anti-solidaristic. You know, it creates um, a situation in which you um, you like. I mean, people have talked about it, like the oppression Olympics. Like, oh, because I, I I checked these three boxes, I am actually more qualified to talk about this kind of issue than you are. Because you know, it's it's it it gets very very. It, you go down very very weird uh, rabbit holes <laughs> if you if yeah. you take those kind of th that kind of thing to its logical conclusion. Yeah, and my whole point is. Diversity is important. It's just how it's being implemented, right? Because yeah. I do think that there, I mean, when you think about the left and when you think about people who actually want to represent working Americans, working people, that is a diverse group of people. It's just that the establishment refuses to in any way uh, help them, you know, find themselves in positions of power, right? They, yeah. they don't allow those people to have any influence, and that's the issue. I mean, yeah. I think I think Representative Marsha Fudge and how Biden chose her uh, to serve uh, if she it's gets confirmed um, in HUD is like that's a perfect example. Uh, yeah. He, you think he doesn't know, or you think the transition team doesn't know what Marsha Fudge Fudge's record is when it comes to um, you know agricultural issues and food stamps? They know, they know, 
And there's a very real reason why they decided to put her in HUD and refuse to nominate her uh, for um, uh, the agriculture department. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Nando, I can't wait to hear about what's going on in India because um, it's definitely inspiring and hopefully it inspires um, some organizers here in the United States. Yeah, I wanted to turn our attention to to outside of our our great country because what's happening in India, the largest democracy on earth, is really quite remarkable and it hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention in the American press. For the past couple of weeks, India has been shut down by the largest general strike in human history. A whopping 250 million people have joined the call to strike as 31 trade unions, workers' federations, and farmers' groups have banded together to stop Prime Minister Narendra Modi's latest round of neoliberal reforms. And at the heart of the movement are India's farmers who have marched en masse to the capital of New Delhi and essentially shut down traffic into the city by blocking the major highways. More than 60% of India's population rely on agriculture for a living. But farmers who've long been a crucial voting bloc often complain of being ignored. And now they're worried they could be exploited by agriculture reforms passed in September. The laws seek to loosen rules around the sale, pricing and storage of farm produce. Farmers fear the new free market system means they'll lose government-backed minimum price guarantees. They've tried to march on the capital, New Delhi, but have been stopped by police using tear gas and batons. Now they're blocking main roads and plan to stay until their demands are met. Yeah, and the basic demand is the repeal of this series of laws that were rammed through the parliament by Modi's party, the BJP, which essentially deregulate the agricultural sector by removing price guarantees and allowing Indian farmers more choice to sell to whomever they want on the private market. Does that sound familiar? The Indian government says the reforms are necessary to boost production and bring in much-needed private investment. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has tried to assure farmers the laws won't harm their businesses. I want to tell the citizens and farmers from the banks of the river Ganges and the holy city of Varanasi that we are working with intentions which are pure as the water of the river Ganges and without any purpose of betrayal. As pure as the water of the river Ganges, stirring stuff. But Indian farmers and workers have not been fooled by Modi's stirring rhetoric. And of course, the Indian police have responded with force. This image of an Indian police officer getting ready to strike a farmer went viral as the government is doing everything it can to stop the farmers from overwhelming Delhi. And it's hard to overstate just how awful these so-called reforms are. According to the New York Times, many farmers said the new rules which the Modi administration pushed through Parliament in September are the beginning of the end of a decades-old system that had guaranteed minimum prices for certain crops. They allow farmers greater freedom to sell their produce outside state-controlled agricultural markets, but they also curtail farmers' ability to challenge disputes in courts. While the Modi administration has said that India's farm policies need to be reformed to attract more investment, farmers say they were never consulted on the changes. Several who were interviewed on Monday spoke of their fear of being swallowed up by corporate titans such as Mukesh Diambani, India's richest man, and Gautam Adani, who is not far behind, both known to be close to Mr. Modi. And over half of India's population rely on farming to make a living. They understand what neoliberalism has done to farmers in places like Mexico and even the United States. The freedom of the market is basically a license for giant agribusiness to take over and push people off the land. It is a threat to their very way of life.
जो भी जो है अपना सिस्टम मंडी करना है वो कायम रखना चाहेंगे उसे अगर वो टूट गया तो ये प्राइवेट कंपनी है ये हमें कोई अच्छा रेट थोड़ी देंगी ये अपनी मन मर्जी करेंगी हमसे कॉन्ट्रैक्ट करेंगे हाँ ये रेट लेना देना दो नहीं देना आपकी मर्जी ये तो हमारे हाथ काटने वाला काम कर रहे हैं And one of the reasons why many of India's non-farm workers joined in is because Modi also ran through a series of even broader anti-worker reforms. But people are returning to much worse conditions as workers. We have tampered with the gold standard of labor law, which used to be eight hours a day. Now you can have twelve hours a day without overtime for the last four hours. It'll be at a pro rate, I think. You are having a massive, massive class divide in what's happening. with the top 0.01% adding phenomenally to its wealth and a huge amount of distress at the bottom end and that suite of laws remarkably immunized the government and corporations from any lawsuit not only have they ramped through these laws you know on on prices on contract farming on essential commodities they have included this clause in one of the most important of these laws it says no suit no prosecution or other legal proceedings shall lie against the central government or the state government or or any other person or any officer of the central government or any officer of the state government or any other person in respect of anything read corporations i mean read corporations in brackets or any other person in respect of anything which is done in good faith or intended to be done in good faith under this act and no civil court shall have jurisdictions to to entertain any suit or proceedings in respect of any matter connected to this to the actions under this law have you read many laws like that in a democratic country Yeah, you know, let's just make it impossible to sue the government or literally any corporation as long as they claim they didn't mean to do the awful thing that they actually ended up doing. Now, India's Narendra Modi has often been compared to figures like Trump here in the US or Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, the elected leaders of the second and fourth largest democracies in the world, coincidentally, in that they all adopt a sort of nationalistic, xenophobic rhetoric that is used to disguise by the book neoliberal economic policies. For example, Trump for all his bluster, his only real major le- legislation was a giant tax cut for the wealthy. Modi is no different. His leadership has been marked by increasing vitriol against India's Muslim minority, which plays to a growing sense of Hindu nationalism. Writing in Jacobin, Amol Singh writes, "The BJP, which is Modi's party, established itself on the Indian political scene basing its appeal on three issues: the building of the Ram Mandir temple on the site of the Babri Masjid Mosque, supposedly located at the birthplace of the god Rama, the withdrawal of autonomy from the Muslim majority state of Kashmir, and the promulgation of a universal civil code intended to victimize Christian and Muslim minorities. The BJP consolidated itself as the major electoral power to inaugurate the second hegemonic period as neoliberal capitalism took root in India and state intervention in the economy receded. Popular support for Congress, which is the left center party, declined sharply. The BJP's version of nationalism served as a pan-class social glue, providing India's capitalist economy with a stable polity. And this all came to the forefront last year when Modi and the BJP passed a new citizenship law designed to ban Muslims, which sparked massive protests. 
Protesting is the basic foundation of democracy. We are upholding the basic principles of democracy. No one should stop us from protesting. You don't think so? The police presence intimidates you at all? No, they've scared us so much that no one killed one of them. These students are defying the prohibitory orders and now they're going to be arrested by the Delhi police for, for protesting against the amendment bill. At the root of the anger is the new law by India's Hindu nationalist government that gives citizenship to minority communities from Afghanistan, Pakistan and Bangladesh. But Muslims have been left off that list. A decision the protesters argue is discriminatory and against the spirit of the Indian constitution. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi has defended the law, accusing the opposition of spreading lies and encouraging violence. Now see if that sounds familiar. Modi and the BJP foreground cultural issues while passing your standard issue privatization and deregulation laws in the background. And like the United States, India is not a very heavily unionized country. Only 10.7% of India's workers are unionized, and in the United States it's 10.3%. And India's labor movement, like much of the labor movement around the world, has been in retreat for a long time now. For the first few decades after India got independence from the British in 1947, India's first Prime Minister Nehru and his left of center party, the Indian National Congress, instituted what's called a mixed economy with entire industrial sectors run by the government. That led to massive trade unions. But in the 1980s, India adopted neoliberalism, like much of the rest of the world, and began introducing market reforms. And this has been devastating for the trade union movement. A report by the International Labor Organization shows just how stark the decline was. These aggregate numbers hide different trends for different groups, according to the report. Union density among salaried workers has fallen precipitously since 1993-94 by 17.7 percentage points, while it has increased for casual workers and among self-employed workers. There have been some attempts at unionizing workers in the informal economy, especially among home-based workers, either to negotiate for minimum wages or to demand for better conditions. But despite the fact India's union density stands at a paltry 10%. But because the country has over a billion people, that is still a shit ton of people in absolute terms. And they showed what they can achieve if they exercise their power. So what changed? Why now? Well, the obvious answer is the pandemic. Modi's response to the pandemic has been abysmal. As of this week, India has had over 9 million confirmed COVID cases and over 140,000 confirmed deaths. And that number is surely much, much higher. And the economic situation is equally dire. According to official, this is from Al Jazeera, according to official figures released on Friday, India's gross domestic product, GDP, contracted by 7.5% in the second quarter, an improvement on the previous quarter's record-breaking 23.9% fall with two consecutive quarters of negative growth. India has now formally entered a recession, even as it shows signs of improvement. But when you dig a little deeper, you see this little tidbit. A November report from India's central bank showed a 35% surge in net profits for non-financial firms. But analysts warn this is a result of cost-cutting rather than strong demand. Among other measures, companies are lowering their wage bills. Uday Tharar, uh, an emerging markets economist at the investment firm GMO, told Al Jazeera, that means the recovery that we saw in August and September is not translating into benefits for employees. And the government's total lack of a COVID response and the worsening economic situation has destabilized its politics to the point where we are now seeing these historic work strikes. 
And if they can do it in India, a massive complex country with many different ethnicities, we can do it here. Now, the situation now between the farmers and the government is at a standstill. The Modi government tried to throw some piecemeal concessions to them, but they refused. They are insisting that they will not unblock the highways into Delhi until these laws are fully repealed. One farmer was quoted as saying, quote, we have enough ration for two and a half to three months, said Tarpreet Upal, traveling in a modified tractor that is their lifeline. There is a 5,000 liter tank, gas stove, inverter, every facility you can think of. We have mattresses, quilts, enough vegetables, he told NDTV, asserting that the farmers had no intention of returning home soon. They have tarpaulin to cover the tractor and protect them from the rising winter chill. We will stay in Delhi as long as it takes. We are going to win Delhi. Yeah, it's it's so incredibly inspiring. And when I was talking about this story on uh, TYT yesterday, um, I started off, you know, in the lead by mentioning um, the quarter billion people who took part in the general strike. And then I said, <laughs> because my American brain can't really comprehend it. Like, I can't process. Yeah, <laughs> our um, small American 200, brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like 250 million people yeah. taking to the streets, doing this general strike. And so I referred to it as 250,000 people. Right. Um, you know, I misspoke. I obviously knew yeah, that yeah. it was 250 million. But it's just... The, the sheer numbers, and of course, part of it is because there's such a giant population in India, about 1.3 billion people. Uh, but what was inspiring about it wasn't just the amount of people who participated in that general strike. It was the fact that there was solidarity among farmers and non-farmers, yeah. simply workers who, who understand how important the livelihoods um, are for these, especially rural farmers, many of whom um, are actually going hungry right now. Um, there was a statistic that I was reading about that showed that if every rural farmer, I, I'm sorry, every rural uh, Indian spent 100% of their income, every single you know amount of it, all of it, um, on food, they 63% of them still would not get um, the nutrition that they need right. to live healthy lives. Like that kind of statistic kind of gives you an idea of how uh, devastating uh, the poverty is. And, you know, 20, the unemployment rate right now is at 27% because of the pandemic. Yeah. And so um, when you look at individuals who engaged in the, the general strike and then the protests and marches that followed it, um, it really does cut across caste, class, and religion. And so that solidarity is something that we need to think about as we engage in these discussions, because the left needs to be, in America specifically, needs to be more welcoming, yeah. right? Um, and it goes back to what we talked about earlier in the show, which is we all get the urge to be um, judgmental or to dunk on people, but we need to understand power. And even if we disagree with people who um, have absolutely no power, we need to think about ways of persuading them to join us and fight for what we're demanding, equality for workers, a better world for workers. Um, and we're seeing that happening in India to some extent, and I love it. The one thing that I will bring up, though, is... Obviously, uh, these protesters w were met with military force. And I'm wondering, I mean, the thing that 
concerns me is just how militarized the United States is and the military capability the United States has. So I'm not mentioning that to discourage anyone, but it is something to keep in mind, right? Because if the United States wants to squash something, they can squash it real quick. Well, not just that, but like the surveillance, you know, they, (laughs) you know, how do you organize them? They they know what we're, you know, they know what's going to happen before it happens. But yeah, I mean, and the the other thing that struck me as, as I was building this segment is just how little attention it's received in the American press. I mean, you know, a few articles in the New York Times and things like that, but, you know, there's no big segments on CNN or anything like that. Um, and you compare that to something like the Hong Kong protests that, that were happening um, a few months ago. That's and a good point. the wall-to-wall point. coverage uh, of those, which I'm not, I'm not trying to, like, poo-poo them or anything like that, but it's more like think about the wall-to-wall coverage that happens when a quote-unquote enemy country uh, – has a protest movement within it and what happens when 250 million people i mean like it just a, it's insane like you said a number that our small american brains cannot even process uh <laughs> and, and it's nothing nothing no coverage at all like i mean we're very minimal coverage you know you really have to dig it's not like you go around and talk to people you you ask people about the hong kong protest like oh yeah yeah something's going on in hong kong like it's like s- filtered into um the national consciousness but this just nothing just complete blanket um, uh, avoidance from the media. And I, I always find that thing, that kind of thing maddening, you know, that it's just, it's yeah, so blatant what they're, what they do. <laughs> yeah. You think the corporate media wants to encourage Americans to engage in a general strike? Of course no. they don't. And, and not only that, I mean, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. Um, yeah. They don't want to encourage oh, something I like was... this. They, they want to show, they don't want to show the example. Yeah, but I did want to give uh, props to, honestly, the only American independent news outlet that did cover uh, this story, uh, and that was Democracy Now! I know yeah. you pulled a few uh, clips from yeah, um, yeah. Amy Goodman's interview. It was fantastic. The, yeah. I, honestly, Democracy Now! is the only American news outlet I can rely on for foreign policy-related news or what's happening internationally, and um, that's pretty devastating. So Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, obviously, they yeah, they... they they're always on they they always cover like big protest movements and social movements and things like that so yes but like outside of that you know, CNN's not touching this uh no. it's, it's MSNBC got got not touching this i mean it's just it, it's it's remarkable in that sense and it's um it'll be interesting to see how, how what happens i mean it, you know there's no guarantees that this thing is going to actually um work or 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 really kind of move beyond the the current phase it's in but they they do seem very determined um and 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 they really they really are exercising their leverage by literally just shutting down the capital i mean um the, the government is just desperate to move them to this like separate field outside they're like oh we'll negotiate you once we move you away from the thing and they're like no we're not we're not fucking moving like that's that's our leverage like what are you talking about like right. why would of you give course, us anything yeah. once we've you know once we've already conceded the thing we're we're giving you pain you know like that's the whole point pain is the point because then you have to, then you're incentivized to stop it uh so yeah um, protests aren't meant to be convenient <laughs> like the whole point no. is to you know make the situation inconvenient for people in positions of power yeah, um exactly. and so or people who you know might not be aware of what's really going on um yeah. and so yeah um, all right. Well, we got to move on um, because yeah. we have a fantastic interview ahead for you guys. And uh, let's get it started. So uh, joining us now is Richard Seymour. He's the author of The Twittering Machine and Ooh. a critic of what he refers to as the social industry. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. 
I love talking about um, the impacts of the social industry, uh, especially when it comes to uh, debunking some of the messaging that so many users were fed in the early days of the social media platforms. Uh, the yeah. idea of democratizing information, the idea of how this is going to lead to uh, a better life for you. You can take charge of your own career and you can do wonderful things with the internet. But in reality, you know, you argue that to live in a digital world is to live in a, a simulacrum. And I wanted you to elaborate on that a little more. All right. Well, I suppose the first thing to say is that uh, you describe the kind of technophilic, uh, techn technophilic um, utopianism uh, of the early uh, years of the Internet when everybody believed that it was going to liberate people on a very individualistic basis. Um, recently, that's become uh, the, the obverse, you know, a kind of moral panic. Um, and you saw that with the Social Dilemma um, uh, documentary, which is basically about scapegoating the, uh, the Internet social industry for everything. So what I wanted to do was to try and figure out, um, first of all, you know, uh, how much is this industry responsible for? Um, and, you know, did it just invent these phenomena we call fake news, for example? Well, when was the era of unalloyed truth telling on the part of national media? You know, when did the Washington Post and New York Times not give us disinformation about Iraq or whatever? OK, um, so that's the you know, and then you think about things like trolling us, actually building a longstanding cultural phenomena like social sadism um, and some of it quite harmless and actually, you know, quite amusing in some contexts. It just depends, obviously. So all the problematic aspects that we attribute to the social industry has roots in the kind of societies that we live in. And the question is, how do they then, I guess, uh, magnify and potentiate those trends? Um, so the, I mean, what I'm calling the social industry um, is essentially when this is taken over from Adorno's idea of a culture industry where, you know, culture is very homogenized because it's driven by the logic of commodification so that the plots and characters and so on that you get in mainstream Hollywood formula are very, very um, conservative, very repetitive, very stereotyped. And that tends to produce a kind of reactionary mentality, according to Adorno. What I'm arguing is actually something much, much worse in some ways um, which is that the social industry uh, is one wherein uh, our social lives have been commodified, have been subordinated to the logic of commodification. Because when we spend more time uh, communicating with one another through screens uh, than we do face to face, and that was the case well before the plague set in, um, then that has become our social lives. So what are the protocols of our social life? Um, these days and who is scripting it? Well, we know that the protocols of the social industry were drafted largely by um, and on behalf of a fairly small group of wealthy, usually white men in uh, Northern California, um, you know, which has its own specific class histories and its racial histories and so on. Um, so it's a fairly small subset of humanity that's decided that we need to create um, an industry that's based upon the idea of a competitive hierarchy of celebrity. Okay, so that's the crucial thing. The condition for taking part in this industry, you can use it for many useful purposes, but you have to uh, situate yourself somehow as a celebrity and you have to cultivate this personal idol. You have to have your picture. You have to have your uh, profile description. Um, every bit of co uh, content that you put out has to be about cultivating that personal idol. 
Um, so obviously the industry has an incentive to ensure that you're continually goaded into writing more and more and feeding it more information because the whole economic model is predicated on extracting data from you based on how you scroll, what you click through, what you write, and so on. So it becomes a system wherein the information that you're exposed to it doesn't select for accuracy in least, certainly doesn't select for thoughtfulness uh, or, you know, open-mindedness or generosity of interpretation or anything like that. It selects for somatic impact. It's designed to get you addicted. I mean, that's they believe that they've created an addiction machine. So the whole point is it has to hit you on a gut level. And I think anybody who's been on uh, their feeds can imagine how this works. I mean, you just have to go on your Twitter feed or whatever it happens to be that you like uh, and spend about 20 minutes on it. And chances are you'll encounter one or two or three things that will drive you nuts for the rest of the day. And the only thing you can do, the only catharsis is to type. You've got to get typing and you've got to type as quickly as possible because the conversation moves on so quickly. And the imperative to type quickly means there's little time to think. So you get, um, you know, uh, quick fire emotive reactions uh, that are based on the, you know, the, the least charitable interpretation of something that you've seen on the Internet. Um, and it's it's not surprising. The joke used to be, you know, somebody sitting up until 3 a.m. I can't go to sleep. Somebody is wrong on the Internet. Well, we're all <laughs> wrong on the Internet. That's that's part of the economic structure. We have to be wrong on the Internet. And, uh, I'm, I'm curious because, you know, Benjamin Fong and Matt Chrisman and others have said that, like, for any left to really take hold and, and, and take power, we all need to log off. Um, and you've talked about how, um, you know, the social industry emerged as a capitalist appropriation of the online left. But w w do you buy that thesis or, or, or are you skeptical of it? Like, what do you, what do you think that, that, that is the social industry an antithetical to any potential left movement? I'm not I'm not asking people to log off for one very simple reason. I haven't logged off myself. I mean, obviously, I'm a, I'm a petty bourgeois writer. I need to make money. So, you know, this this is my audience, right? Um, so that's that's part of it. But the other thing is um, there are some aspects of it that I find useful. What I uh, am asking us to do is to think about how it's impacting on our lives and how we can t uh, take a different relationship to it. So uh, if we're using the um, uh, the idea of addiction, to uh, understand our relationship to it. Well, if, if it is addictive, that's quite dangerous. Because if you think about it, if you're running a left-wing project and somebody says, hey, why don't you go on Fox News and talk about your left-wing project? Well, you'd be a bit skeptical. And if you did decide to go on, you'd be quite guarded. You wouldn't spill out all your secrets and you wouldn't get into a, a sort of a furious fist fight with whoever was on there. But because when we're on the social industry, there's this spurious intimacy. You know, people are talking about their divorces. They've got pictures of their kids. They're describing <laughs> how depressed they were last year. So it, you can feel like you're in an intimate, enclosed space with friends. And so you let everything out. And so that's, and that's of course, part of the whole addictive uh, mechanism. So first of all, I would suggest if we're doing something political, um, then it's 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 absolutely fine to use it. Um, indeed, you have to. That you don't really have a choice. Uh, no 
powerful force would uh, disown the properties of this system and nor should we, but we should professionalize our relationship to it. We should uh, try and separate that from the ways in which people tend to use it for personal reasons. And then the other part of that I suggest is uh, we are obviously using it a lot for personal reasons, but we don't understand those reasons very well because addictions tend to happen behind your back. You know, it's one small decision after another small decision. They call it, uh, I mean, I always use this line, they call it the social media. I mean, this is like calling cigarettes friendship sticks. I mean, they can be used in that mm-hmm. way, but that's not what they're for. Um, and it's a bit like this. So, you you know, one one more cigarette, one more drink, and gradually this thing that was fun is beginning to exercise veto power over all other forms of enjoyment in your life so that, you know, you're sitting at your family dinner table and people are watching you scroll through your feeds and get very angry and re- retort to people. That's the way it takes over your life gradually and it colonizes your lunch hours and your journeys on public transport and your, you know, sometimes your car journeys when you shouldn't and, uh, you know, it takes <laughs> over your, your meal times. This is how it works. It transforms the life that you have to live which, um, I mean, let's say... You're right. Oh, sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, like the average person on the planet lives for about 71 years. I think, I I can't remember exactly how many uh, thousand hours. I'm halfway there. Right. But but you think about that, um, the amount of time, the average amount of time that we all spend on the social industry, the average person globally, uh, is about 50,000 hours uh, in their lifetime. If you think what you could be doing with that, um, so I'm not suggesting don't go on the social industry. Uh, otherwise, I would be a complete hypocrite and a liar. Um, and also, uh, you know, I've, I've got no business being sanctimonious because I've been the idiot on the social industry trolling people or harassing celebrities for saying something problematic or whatever it happens to be. But we need to recognize that this is our life that is at stake here. We need to take our lives seriously. And to do that, we need to get an executive overview of what we're doing and to say, you know, you know, could we be doing something if not this? That's the minimum utopian question we need to be asking. What else could we be doing if not this? According to Malcolm Gladwell, if you do 10,000 hours, you master a skill. So 50,000 hours, that's five five skills we're not mastering in our lifetime, according to Malcolm Gladwell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm personally feeling uh, a lot of anxiety as you discuss this because there's a great deal of pressure uh, for everyone to be plugged into uh, the social industry. Your livelihood depends on it. And I want to, I want to follow up on something that you said about, uh, you know, using the social industry for professional reasons and shying away from using it, uh, from using it for personal reasons. But when you think about how this, this has kind of created a culture of individual celebrity and Everyone needs to outdo the other. It's this competitive, um, you know, situation where uh, you're competing for likability, you're competing for celebrity. And so as a result, and this is how I've personally felt as someone who is plugged into the social industry, you have to share uh, the personal elements of your life in order to um, increase your chances of uh, that individual celebrity, which again, I don't personally care about individual celebrity. But in the industry I work in, you literally need that in order yeah. to protect your livelihood. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Oh yeah, I mean I know all about that. Um and you know, I've been I've been on the sort of selfie spiral where you know, you take a picture of yourself, you get so many likes and you go, god, I'm I'm not that bad looking after all and you, you post a whole bunch of them to get the likes um and you become addicted um and uh, you know, part of the whole mechanism is to get you to turn your life into raw material that can be uh you know, extracted as data. Um Obviously, the uh, the celebrification, the universal celebrification, is going to um, pose a number of different kinds of problems. Uh, at level of uh, journalism and news reporting, I think one of the baleful effects that it's having is that it forces um, certainly the top. Um, layer of journalists, what in this country we call lobby journalists, so people have, who are close to power, um, they tend to um, relegate the actual rigor of reporting and analysis to um, the novelty of developing their personal icon on the social industry, because that's going to be the basis upon which they get better contracts, uh, upon which they get a de decent television show. And you see this all the time. Um, during the last general election in the UK, for example, you know, the, um, uh, some of the worst behavior by those journalists was because they were trying to come out with um, the most um, up-to-date novelty. Uh, and that meant they were in very um, manipulable by power. Now, on a lower level of analysis, and you know, not just talking about um, uh, its its impact on politics and journalism, but on an individual basis, we have to ask why is being a celebrity is so goddamn miserable? I mean, there's been innumerable studies about this, and you know, the the correlation between being a celebrity and being depressed, being self harming, engaging in suicidal behaviour. I mean, it's it's through it's you know it's through the roof basically, um, and we are finding uh, now. I, I think we have to be very careful about this. There's some data talking about correlations, um, sometimes quite convincingly, between. Increased screen time when you're, you know, exposed to the social industry uh, and depressive behavior and suicidal behavior and uh, self-harm and so on. Um, and I think we should take all that very seriously. Now, the danger is, of course, then we get into a kind of moral panic literature where we're just scapegoating and we're not talking about all the other things that could be making people feel a bit depressed these days, you know, um, like climate change, like rising sort of far right politics and all the rest of it. Um, but you can obviously see why, for example, uh, a young woman uh, or a teenage girl on Instagram um, who is constantly cultivating this personal I idol, this icon, which is not really like her, is not the kind of person she really is, but it's her living her best life, you know, her ecstatic, euphoric, and looking as sexy as she can be, or, you know, as, as attractive and glamorous as she can be. All of that stuff, which she knows is not really like her, and the gap between the person she is and the person that she's becoming or the icon that she's become invested in is profoundly oppressive and distressing. Um, the more you get invested in the filtered selfie and the selfie taken from above, um, the less you uh, like or admire the, the actual face that you've got. Um, so I think that... Already the pressures on, um, in this case, uh, you know, teenage girls, for example, were already quite significant coming from, you know, the capitalist media, you know, fashion, all, all that, all the rest of it. And I'm not moralizing about these things, but I do think we recognize these pressures. Well, uh, you can say certainly that the social industry in this instance has 
uh, harnessed those tendencies and magnified them and potentiated them and turned them into a constant presence um, that's so close, so intimate, because it's always in your pocket. So it's somehow both massified because it's big data and very personalized. And it gets mm. right to the heart, right to the gut. Um, so that's the danger of it. And I'm curious to ask you, because you've touched on it a little bit, um, but it's a it's a debate that is kind of raging right now, uh, both on the left and on the right, about, quote unquote, social media censorship and, you know, things like Twitter, uh, you know, uh, putting a little note next to Donald Trump's tweets saying that these are false or whatever. Um, and, you know, obviously, conservatives are very up in arm about it. Some leftists are as well. Um I, I go back and forth. Uh, you know, I, I, do, I also am skeptical of, you know, Facebook's ability to uh, censor these kind of things or like regulate speech and all that stuff. But on the other hand, I also recognize that just kind of unfettered media is also kind of problematic. And I don't know what to think. I just don't know where to where I'm landing on it. Like I have an impulse against censorship always in all cases. But I also think that just the kind of Wild West of it. Uh, of it all um, is also problematic. And I agree with you, by the way, that like in general, that the, the social media fake news thing is overhyped, that television news is like the, the fake news that comes out of television news is undervalued. And that the biggest fake news uh, example in my life is that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction, <laughs> which is pre-social media. So, uh, but yeah, I just, I, I've been working, I've been trying to work through these things in my head and I just want to see what, what your kind of take is on it. Um. Well, I think the, the thing is, from the point of view of the social industry, you can't win. If you don't censor, then you're seen and rightly seen to be making profit out of like neo-Nazis and, and uh, fake news and, you know, conspiracy theories and so on. Uh, and if you do, it's always arbitrary. Uh, it's always based upon, um, you know, just a, a convenient political arrangement with what you what you as an executive of the social industry imagine to be the balance of forces in Washington. Um, and the reason why they can't win in that sense is because those uh, they are not the sorts of people we want to be trusting to make these decisions. Um, and therefore, we need to take that power away from them. Uh so, for example, take the term community guidelines. Community guidelines is a term used um, particularly by Facebook. And if you've ever mm. read, read their community, gu community guidelines document, it's an absolute mess. Um, you know, it, it wouldn't make any sense to um, anyone, particularly not to somebody who's um, an underpaid moderator, um, you know, a, a member of the digital proletariat way in uh, Egypt or something to uh, moderate uh, content. And that's why the results are often so profoundly uh, mystifying. You know, when you report something, I just got somebody threatened, threatened to murder me with an axe. Uh, this does not breach our guidelines, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the problem is these are not community guidelines. There is no community here. There should be. Uh, there should be some sort of collective control over this, but there isn't. What there is, is a set of corporate protocols for behavior. The other side of this, another term they like to use is free speech, of course. Now, that's a more familiar uh, term, but they have a very particular relationship to it. When Twitter and so on talk about free speech, as they often do, uh, one of the things that they uh, have said traditionally is the best remedy for bad speech is good speech. 
So therefore, we are in favor of the we're the free speech wing of the free speech party. Now, what they tend to mean really is a uh, we absolutely defend our monopoly on all content uh, on our platforms, uh, and that monopoly cannot be challenged by regulators or by members of the public or by democratically elected governments. Right. So it's about uh, defending their monopoly over their content. Um, second of all. Uh, in the case of uh, remedy bad speech with good speech, they want, uh, you know, and they, they've actually said this, you know, they, they encouraged journalists and professionals to use their platform to rebut um, the conspiracy mm. theorists. So uh, it's almost as if, you know, journalists have to go on there and do some free work uh, in order that we don't have our um, uh, infosphere polluted by this garbage and of course, it's totally ineffectual, as you know. Fact checking, you know, uh, all that stuff—it's uh, it's even less effective than call-out culture. It doesn't work. It doesn't change anybody's mind because nobody, but nobody, uh, who believes that uh, PizzaGate is real is going to be turned around by the Washington Post. Uh, nerding <laughs> actually, there is no basis for this. It's just not going to work. So, um, because. There's a, a, a layer to this, um, and I think this is a, a constant theme throughout the Twittering machine. Uh, there's a layer to this which is not about reason. It's not about rationality any more than it's about kind of behaviorist models of stimulus response, which is the basis of the social industry's understanding of itself, how they manipulate people. There's actually a level of human behavior, which, uh, you know, I refer to in sort of psychoanalytic terms, the unconscious. You know, it's it's not rational. It doesn't learn anything. And it uh, it's how that dimension of human experience gets hooked into this system that makes us so susceptible to, uh, you know, um, these kind of conspiracy theories and so on. The reason we believe them is because at some level we want to believe them. We need them to be true. And they're addictive for us. That's another thing. Um, there's a term which uh, I like to use in these contexts. It's apophenia. So if you're a member of QAnon, you're farming apophenia. You're farming this dizzying sense of, wow, head-exploding, um, uh, sort of, um, things that, you know, happened, con um, sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting the term that I'm looking for here. Coincidences. Like the, the yeah. you remember, um, uh, the Q guy said, how many coincidences before it's statistically impossible? Now, of course, this is nonsense, you know, but the, you, you can, you, like, it, I remember the experience the first time some 9 11 truther said to me, do you know that jet fuel can't melt steel beams? And, of course, I later learned that this was rubbish. But, you know, the point was, it's like, they're lying to that, Yeah. And that's, that's the kind of, that's, that's very addictive. The other kind of addiction, of course, is the type that Adorno talked about when he wrote about anti-Semitism, which is, you know, um, and you can apply this to racism and conspiracy thinking of all types in a way, um, which is that no matter how terrifying this life world that they portrayed through their theory is, um, it is in some sense reassuring because it's made sense of the world in some way for them. Um, mm. It's given them a yeah. place in it. Um, and of course it's, it's actually got an in, in, in it um, tendency to escalate. Um, it's a bit like pornography in that sense. They're always looking for more extreme riffs on the same basic uh, content. Um, if you want an example of this, I wouldn't know anything about that. Uh, I wasn't going to talk <laughs> about pornography. Um, <laughs> if you want an example of this, 
it's considered Darren Osborne. Um, Darren Osborne was an unemployed, depressed, alcoholic uh, Welshman uh, or man who lived in Wales, and uh, he um, uh, had um, not been very political until he saw a documentary a BBC documentary about um, uh, sort of grooming gangs, uh, you know, paedophile grooming gangs in the North. And he inferred that this was happening because they, you know, these gangs were Muslims. Now, of course, it's a lot more complicated than that. There was all sorts of uh, factors going on here. But he wanted to interpret it in an Islamophobic way because Britain has an Islamophobic culture. So he went online and started looking at Tommy Robinson, uh, the British fascist YouTube videos and content. And it was so compulsive to him that he spent about three weeks compulsively digesting this stuff and then decided he was a soldier against Islam, and he drove a van into London trying to find Jeremy Corbyn to knock him over because he believed that Jeremy Corbyn was a traitor and he was going to kill him. Uh, in the end, he drove up to Finsbury Park Mosque and ploughed into people outside that mosque and managed to kill one person, but he said he wanted to kill all Muslims. He was psychically fueled for genocide. That's how compulsive and addictive this thing was. Something about his depression, and I think this is crucial, Something about his depression was turned into the motive, the animus for um, his version of a kind of jihad. And yeah. uh, I think that the way in which the social industry allows these vectors of far-right politicization, I don't think it's coincidental, by the way, that the far-right does better out of this. Um, the way in which it, uh, it, it seems to say, almost say to you, so you've got these demons that you're wrestling with. Well, here's the real demons. They're Muslims, or there's the great replacement, or uh, there's the Jews who will replace us or who will not replace us, or all of this stuff, whatever conspiracy theory it happens to be. And it's very animating, and it's, it's, it's got a sort of artificial sense of empowerment. That's really, really addictive for these people. And, it, of course, you know, that's the hence the lone wolfish aspects of it. Yeah, that's that's especially terrifying considering uh, this pandemic and how it's led to uh, depression among so many more people, especially as we're all, you know, um, staying in our homes. Uh, loneliness was already a problem. I'm sure that loneliness is skyrocketing um, under this pandemic. And so it, it kind of becomes a vicious cycle uh, because the loneliness that people are feeling, the depression that people are feeling um it might seem to them that it's being alleviated through the, these interactions online. Uh, but in reality, I mean, as you mentioned, and I think this is absolutely true, um, it just perpetuates more depression, more loneliness, um, and it just becomes a vicious cycle. I do want to pivot, though, uh, to talk about something that you also address, and I think it's so important for people to understand this. You know, you believe uh, that we're lab rats and wageless laborers when it comes to using the social industry or being part of the social industry. And uh, the first time I heard, uh, you know, wageless laborers was when I was reading some work by uh, Christian Fuchs, who um, mentioned the fact that we're just handing off our data um, and that data then becomes, um, you know, the bread and butter for so many of these different social media platforms. Can you elaborate on that a little more and, and talk about how uh, damaging that can be to our personal lives, really, when all this data about us, you know, we're unwittingly sharing information that's being sold to uh, third parties? 
Um, well, I mean, the interesting thing is, I suspect most people by now kind of have some general awareness that they're that, that that's the deal. It's a kind of gift economy. You know, we'll we'll give you a tool that you can use, which will subtly manipulate you in various ways uh, in exchange for data that we're going to extract about you. Perhaps people don't know the the full extent of it, but. Um, I, th- I mean, when I say that we're lab rats and wageless laborers, um, I want to qualify that in one very important sense. Um, there is um, a famous experiment, you know, behaviorist experiment done with uh, rats and, you know, in terms of how they react to stimulus response, rewards and so on. And uh, this is the, you know, this is where the idea of lab rats came from. Um the problem is that, of course, um, we are not uh, genuinely lab rats. We have uh, a much more complicated psychological structure, for one. But even the rats, actually, it turned out that if you put them in different circumstances, you didn't individualize them, you left them in a social group, their susceptibility to that kind of stimulus response was greatly reduced. Um, so I think that's very important. Okay, so I just want to clarify that. Um, wageless laborers, in the sense that I wanted to just underline the novelty of what's taking place here. This is not, um, you know, I mean, what kind of power structure is this? It's not, it's not a market, clearly. It can feel like a market because, of course, the whole point is we're all bidding for some sort of currency, even if that currency is attention, um, which can be monetized. But it's not a market. Um, it's certainly not a democracy. Uh, you know, we don't have any say. And we're not the consumers, Crucially, I mean, you know, the the, the famous uh, term is uh, that we're users, much as heroin addicts are users. Um, so uh, we are um, engaged in this system um, and uh, subtly manipulated and goaded into uh, constantly engaging with it, typing stuff in and so on. Um, now, that can have a number of obviously positive consequences in that it, it can enable us to reach people we wouldn't ordinarily reach. Um, it can enable us to find audiences that we wouldn't previously have been able to find. Uh, I can tell you, for example, I remember the days when if you went on a protest, you kind of wondered whether the news would give it like five seconds um, and if they would even tell the truth about it. Well, now you don't have to worry about that because it's going to be covered. So that's the plus side of it. But the other side is, of course, um, insofar as you're not in control of the information that you're being exposed to. And insofar as the information has been reduced to pure somatic stimulus. In other words, from the point of view of the social industry, they don't really care about the meaning of the stuff that they're feeding you. The algorithms dictate what you're gonna see based upon what they think you will react most viscerally to. Now, if you think about this, suppose you've got somebody who is um, uh, sort of, uh, let's say, regularly gets subject to racist abuse on Twitter, right? Um, One of the things they might do is respond angrily to that racist abuse. Now, as far as the system is concerned, that means that's good. They're engaging. They must love this content. Let's give them more of this content. And indeed, if you listen to the way in which the social industry talk about its users, um, they don't believe, because this is the extent to which we're really not in a democracy or a market, they don't believe that we are capable of knowing really what we want. They think that if, you know, if, if people say they want one thing, 
um, you better check it out and have an alpha test because only the alpha test will show what people really want. So they will go by the numbers based upon engagement. So even if the engagement is incredibly negative, even if it drives us nuts, and indeed all addictions have uh, a profoundly you know, negative um, aspect to them, that's part of the addiction. Uh, that's the death drive element, if you like. Um, well, the, the system will register that as good. The, the, you know, the the, um, the the population uh, that constitutes our users uh, are engaging more. So as far as we're concerned, it's working. They like it. They love it. Um, so that's, um, first of all, that's obviously setting us up for profoundly distressing and unpleasant experiences, such as, for example, everybody probably has an experience like this. You, you say something and it's interpreted uh, as being something bad, something problematic, something against contemporary mores, and uh, people attack you for it. And then, of course, you try and defend yourself and say, that's not what I meant. But, of course, on the social industry, there is no generosity. And b b before long, it's spiralled out of control, and uh, you've got 500 people you never heard of stomping on you for this thing that you said. And the more they do that, the more compulsive it is, and the more you feel like you've got to be um, you, you're, you're gripped by it. You're emotionally gripped by it. And you're professing your innocence, um, typing into this uh, smartphone or whatever it is that you're using. Well, you see celebrities do that every day, of course, so, you know, whenever their fans turn on them. Um, but I think all of us do a version of this. And it is really an interesting question why it happens to be more gripping at just the points when it's turned on us and become incredibly a negative and nasty experience. Um, but if we start to understand that the economic imperative of the system is it's not about informing us, it's not even really about allowing us to communicate. It's about ensuring that we engage in such a way as that we produce data about ourselves so that we can be manipulated for markets. As long as we understand that, we'll understand why our situation is so apparently helpless. So final question, Richard, um, how do you see us, uh, you know, fight back against this? Like, wh what do you see as possible solutions? Uh, because one of the things, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. I, all, every single one of us has, because um, all the incentives are there to engage in the toxic behavior, right? So uh, you get brownie points uh, by your own bubble, people in your own bubble, if you're uh, going after someone you disagree with and doing so aggressively. Yeah. But what that does is it, it perpetuates this division where um, in reality, if you really take a step back and you look closely, there is a through line among um, the groups of people who are engaging in these uh, battles online. And that is uh, the fact that we're dealing with the ramifications of this capitalistic model, right? Uh, we're dealing with the inequality. We're dealing with all these problems. And rather than joining together in solidarity in order to fight back against it, um, it just perpetuates this division um, where we're all kind of atomized and, you know, in our own little bubbles, not getting anything accomplished. What kind of solutions do you see moving forward, if any, to, to combat that? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the number of different ways in which uh, one could try to answer this. Um, I talk a little bit about how one might respond on an individual level uh, in the book. 
Um, but of course, you know, we might want to think about uh, organized solutions and ultimately political and institutional solutions. So on an individual level, I think we need to figure out, you know, if we're engaging in it um, for personal reasons, we need to figure out what those reasons are. What is the dissatisfaction that has us reaching for our phone? You know, you feel the, the, the first twinge of boredom or anxiety, you reach for your phone. What's that about? Um, and if you can really inquire, as, uh, you know, like have a conversation with somebody about that um, and work out what it is that's, uh, you know, compelling you to be on there, then you can probably take a more um, disciplined approach to your use of these media so that they're not utterly dominating you. Um, on the level of political organization, I've argued for a kind of professionalization of the relationship with uh, the social industry. But I think more importantly, um, we need to not conflate political organization with what we're doing on the Internet. And I understand that some people will argue, well, look, this dichotomy between the Internet and real life isn't it doesn't hold because actually most of us are online now. Billions of people are online now. And, and that's a crucial arena of political action. Well, that's true, but that's not where you're going to get your organizing done. The way in which the uh, social industry organizes you there is, it, it, first of all, it individualizes you as a series of competitive uh, accounts, um, uh, celebrities and so on. And then it serializes you so that uh, you're essentially, you're a chunk of um, information uh, sort of marching through someone's feed. Um, that's not the same thing as political organization. So obviously, um, if we are to have a chance of withstanding this, we need to build our offline, uh, if you like, political organizations. And we need to encourage people where possible, granted it's not easy at the moment, but where possible to meet with other people face to face and have th the kinds of uh, longer and more difficult and more nuanced conversations about politics and other things too, uh, that you're not able to have on the social industry. As long as people are able to do that, they won't have their thinking utterly dominated by this industry, which does not have their interests at heart. And then, of course, finally, there's the level of institutions and, you know, what kind of policies we need. And I'm not going to, um, you know, propose any magic solutions here. There are incremental steps that we can take. This is the important thing. We need intelligent mediations between where we are and where we need to be. Incremental steps would include, for example, um, we could have a public service platform, right? In the United Kingdom, there's the BBC. Now, the BBC has all sorts of faults, but it's a public yeah. service broadcaster. It has a lot of clout and a lot of money. Were they to launch a platform, it would have some reach, and it could be used in such a way that, A, it takes power away from Facebook and Twitter and so on. B, it offers everything that they offer that's useful, but doesn't have the data extracting bits and C isn't trying to get you hooked. So it's not trying to manipulate you. And finally, D, what it, if it had any community guidelines, there would actually be community guidelines. Some uh, community organizations uh, you know, representing the users would be regularly updating these things. So it would in some way reflect the interests of the people who were on it. That's a kind of step that we could take. We could also talk about regulations. Uh, I'm not against uh, the idea of coming up with ways to limit uh, what can be done uh, on these platforms so that the, the decisions aren't all taken by uh, Mark Zuckerberg or whomever. Um, 
because, you know, ultimately their decisions will reflect the interests of their increasingly Napoleonic business empires. Those are the three different levels at which we could approach this problem. And I'm convinced also, finally, um, you know, one of the things about this that's happening uh, is that we're all writing more than we ever have written before on our tube breaks. And, you know, uh, like we've never written as much as we're writing now. Now, that's fine. As a writer, I kind of like the idea that everybody is uh, abruptly, as I say, scripturient, you know, possessed by a violent desire to write. Well, could we think perhaps about liberating that writing from this system, which makes us write in such short bursts of uh, distemper? Maybe we could think about other ways in which we could write and ways which we would enjoy more and which would enable us to be a bit more creative and reflective and which would be a bit more satisfying for us. Um, those are the things that I would encourage people to think about. Well, Richard Seymour, thank you very much. This was very enlightening, uh, very bracing for me. I mean, we're, we're all in it. You know, we're all part of it, especially people who work in, in this business. So thank you so much for taking the time uh, speaking to us. This was an absolutely fascinating discussion. Uh, you know, I'm going to share it with all my Twitter and Instagram addicted friends. <laughs> Everyone check out uh, Richard's book as well. Um, he's the author of The Twittering Machine. Um, and this is really important material since, yeah, uh, Nando's right. This impacts all of us. Um, Richard, thank you again. And hopefully you'll join us again soon. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, all right. Man. Fascinating stuff. Yes. Um, all right. So we follow that with um, salt today. Yes. And, uh, you, you know, usually our salt segments are a little bit lighter, uh, but not today. Uh, it's on something that's um, incredibly important. And it just shows you how handling a pandemic through a capitalistic lens is the worst way to handle a pandemic. And nothing makes that clearer than the um, uneven way in which this uh, vaccine is going to be distributed. Um, so let's get right to it. You ready, Nando? Yes, absolutely. All right. So uh, questions of inequality and the consequences of capitalism are front and center when it comes to this pandemic, as the FDA has uh, approved, by the way, Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine for emergency use authorization. Now, that's good news. That's something worth celebrating yes. about. But but as David Dayen uh, writes in The American Prospect, there's a serious concern that rich countries are hoarding the vaccine and making it impossible for the developing world to access. There's a proposal before the World Trade Organization to suspend all patent rights on coronavirus vaccines due to the exceptional nature of the pandemic. And the United States, UK, EU, and other other nations are blocking it despite a majority of nations in support. The successful vaccines we have uh, were all developed with, and this is something that's very common, by the way, were all developed with at least some public funds and buoyed by public purchasing commitments. So the rich nations are blocking universal access to the public who paid for the vaccine once will have to pay again or pay twice. Uh, again, that's something that Americans are definitely experienced with. I mean, we fund the research and development of all sorts of pharmaceutical drugs, and then they turn around and they price gouge us. But really, the heart of this issue is that uh, there will be uneven distribution of this vaccine, which is, again, the worst way to handle a worldwide pandemic. Yeah. I, like, it doesn't stay in one country. And and by the way, even if it did, even if this was an illness that we can somehow contain in one country, 
why would we be okay with not having equal distribution of this vaccine so everyone around the world uh, can combat it? It's just, it's, it's terrible. And it's disgusting. absolutely maddening because it's in our interest, right? You know, the, the more people that are vaccinated, the better. That's how it works, right? You know, that's how you kill the virus. Um, and it reminds me of a, a, a couple months ago, you, you, there was a, a raft of stories in the New York Times and things like that that were like, the Russians and the Chinese are spying on our efforts to like develop a vaccine to like steal, uh, you know, the research that, that, you know, we're doing on the vaccine. And I'm like, why aren't, why aren't we just okay. giving it to them? Why don't we should just give it to them? <laughs> yeah, totally. They, you know, they'll just give them yeah. all the reasons we should probably, they should publish all the research, you know, uh, um, basically for all to see, because like, it's in our interest to share this kind of thing. Like if there was more labs working on it, more people working on it, we'd get there quicker. You know, and if now if they just published the, the, the you know, all the information about the vaccine, um, it would allow uh, all kinds of labs and things like that all over the world to manufacture it themselves and be able to distribute it more widely, more effectively um, and more broadly, which is in our interest. Right. The only the only rationale for limiting it is money. It's the only thing. It's the yeah. only it's the only rationale. Um, and, you know, for years People have been telling us that these patents are just necessary uh, to spur innovation, that, you know, the only reason why someone would take the time to, you know, dedicate years of their life to uh, develop something like this is if they had the potential of like bajillions of dollars in profit uh, at the end of it. And that's just like, that's just fundamentally untrue. And and beyond that, it it limits the innovation for things like pandemic vaccines because we've we've known about coronaviruses for years now like this is not the first coronavirus this is covid-19 or whatever you know um and Mm -hmm. but and, and we could have been spending resources to develop a vaccine but because the 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 potential returns on a coronavirus vaccine are so uncertain meaning that like there has to be a global pandemic for you to really make money off of it then there is no incentive for people to actually go and develop it. We had this technology. We had the knowledge that this was coming. Had there been a non-profit motive, um, you know, mechanism to develop this kind of thing, we would have been developing vaccines for years now. And we would have just, as soon as the coronavirus hit, we'd be like, oh, there we go. Just fire up the vaccine. No problem. Um, instead, we have what we have because the for-profit system is not capable of planning in this sort of way, in planning in a way that is in the interest of everyone that has long-term thinking, you know, all of these things. Um, So this is just the latest example of that. Like the fact that we're, once we have a vaccine that works, the fact that we're not just giving out that information to everyone, you know, every single government in the world, like the UN, through something like the UN or whatever, um, is just, it's mind boggling. It's just the complete upside down world. Yeah, it is. And, you know, uh, David Dane addresses that as well, um, because, you know, the New York Times asked uh, some of these pharmaceutical companies to respond to um, the unequal way that the uh, vaccine will be distributed across uh, the world. And then, um, as Dayan writes, uh, we should have been investing massive amounts of money for uh, all for, I'm sorry, we should have been investing massive amounts of money all for vaccine production and still should refashioning plants to produce it. Patents are one reason why it's unlikely to happen, 
even if the companies license out production, it will be done in limited ways to increase prices and profits. So it goes to what you were saying, um, Nando, how, you know, if you're functioning under this profit-driven motive, well then, I mean, another way to think about it is why we have so few hospital beds, right? Because it costs money to have enough hospital beds for something like a pandemic. And so it's all about cutting costs, increasing profits, even if it puts us in a uniquely awful position to uh, combat with a uh, national and global pandemic. So um, Moderna was also asked, uh, you know, what are you guys going to do? How is this all going to work? And they said, well, we won't enforce. We're not planning on enforcing um, our patent, but we're also not going to share detailed information uh, about how we develop the vaccine. But why? Why not? not? It's just, you know. Why not? It's Yeah, yeah, it's because because they want a profit. That's really what it is. It's And that's why, I mean, the whole notion of Operation Warp Speed is, hey, pharmaceutical companies, we're going to pump money, um, you know, in this effort to uh, find a vaccine. We're going to help pay for the research and development. Um, and in return, you know, we'll be able to secure a certain amount of, uh, you know, doses of this vaccine. Yeah. And it, again, that also puts uh, various countries at a disadvantage as well. So again, this is a global pandemic, and we need to have a global mindset in combating it and not think of this as rich countries versus poor countries or, or middle-income countries. Yanis Varoufakis wrote a book called uh, – and it wasn't related to this specific issue, but it, the title of it is something that I think about a lot called And the Weak Suffer What They Must um, because that is – it that is just – happens over and over and over again and you know this is just the latest example of being, some of some some estimates show that the that parts of the global south especially sub-saharan africa won't be you know like fully vaccinated till like 2024 at the earliest you know with the current model so Jesus. like yeah um it's crazy should we bring in uh young kale yes what does he people think about all kale. this the people want kale especially in california it's our most popular <laughs> the, our most popular segment it's just the they want a massage kale (laughs) (laughs) um hi guys uh hey yeah i mean that's the i mean what you guys i mean you you basically have encapsulated what the problem is that like capitalists like the people that are like manufacturers because they're on a market they necessarily are profit maximizers cost minimizers um there's been so many things with this pandemic that like the only obvious commonsensical solution to these things, aside from just like basically get in your house and do your best to, to survive, uh, you know, for as long as you can, are like things that directly challenge the like the very nature and rules of capitalism and of, uh, you know, private property owned by a small number of people. Like we need people need income right now like they need guaranteed income they need uh they need work that's safe that has uh paid sick leave like we need universal guaranteed health care like that and like we really like there there are political solutions that can deal with these things and the pandemic just kind of rips open like the the facade that like no like we could have all these things like there's no reason why we couldn't have all these things like, aside from the fact that, like, this monstrous economic system, like, compels us all to be in these horrific situations. Like, so, I don't want to say there's, it's not like there's nothing. Like, it's the worst fucking thing that's ever happened in human history. But 
it's like like it's it's not that like in a different economic system with a different social structure with different social relationships between us we would be in the same situation there's no reason why we couldn't handle diseases and pandemics in like a former rational and humane and egalitarian way yeah and i think i mean a huge part of the problem with how people are interpreting the Trump administration's handling of this pandemic is that they just kind of chalk it up to um, incompetence, which to be sure, Donald Trump is an idiot. Like, I, I don't think he's the smartest guy in the world. But but when you when you look at the actual policies that have been implemented, it's not about how dumb he is. There have been very intentional responses uh, to this pandemic that have put the vast majority of Americans at a significant disadvantage, right? The way that things are. And so when this incoming Biden administration analyzes this as, oh, it's just it's just Trump. He's uniquely awful. No, but it's not just about Trump. It's about the system that was in place prior to Trump even taking power. And what are you going to do that's different? How are you going to change that? And everything that we've heard from Biden is nothing will fundamentally change. I'm not going to actually change the approach. And that's a, that's the problem, right? right? He might come across, I mean, he might come across as somewhat more competent, <laughs> but. Give us um, some slack, Jack. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah. Come on, man. My, my little niece says that now she just goes like, come on, man. She's four years old. It's really cute. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, unless you're willing to challenge um, the the system that puts us at a unique disadvantage, then nothing is really going to change in the way we respond to this pandemic. Right. It's it's about sifting out the the structural mechanisms that limit choices for anyone in that situation, and then like the personal faults or or you know or are positive. Like what what are the actual personal capabilities of the politicians that are coming in? And we're screwed on both sides right now because yeah, like you're saying, like. Just recently, Ryan Grimm got more confirmation that Biden has said, like, yeah, I'm not doing anything. It's amazing. Yeah. I don't really agree with, you know, the left's understanding of, like, uh, the capabilities of of the presidency, which, like, we on the left, like, we find the capabilities of the presidency in America to be, like, massively uh, too powerful and, and destructive. And, like, we would want to curtail the amount of power the president has under a better political system. But to the extent that those exist, like, there's a lot that he can do to actually effectuate some much-needed change right now. And he's basically saying, yeah, Yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah, no. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Also, it's defund the police's fault. (laughs) That's just become, like, it's become the the catch-all. Yeah. That's great. Right. Well, yeah, right. It's just it's these things that, you know, um, it's one of these things where like the left base clearly wants some kind of material redistribution. Um, yes. They like that one because like a lot of people dislike the slogan. And so, yeah, it's like, let's no, just I, I'm not making a comment on that. It's just it's just become it's become like the 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 shield or, or whatever. Yeah. It's like mm-hmm. well, we're not going to do anything, but but also it's stop asking yeah i don't know like it's it's a weird kind of thing we're not going to do anything we're going to tell you that straight up we're not even going to lie about that you know um and uh but we can't lose elections so stop saying stuff you know yeah Yeah, and i love by the way i love the um in that audio recording by the way uh 
Biden says that he's not willing to flex his executive power to circumvent obstruction by Republicans in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he cites uh, the Constitution. We have a Constitution. We have a Constitution. So did the Constitution matter when Barack Obama um, slaughtered an American citizen abroad with without due process? No. Did, that, did, it, did it matter then? The same, and Obama used the same excuse to, to justify his mass deportations. He was like, well, sorry, like there's laws in the book. What am I going to do? It's like, no, 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 no. No, 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 You have broad discretion to enforce these things and to like prioritize like which laws get enforced to which degree. You know, I'm not saying you're going to repeal that law, but you can like just not enforce it as strongly as you have. There's broad, broad, broad discretion. So they use that excuse like and it's just that's the shield. The Constitution is the shield, right? Like, no, no, I'm not going to do anything to actually help people in need because the Constitution. I mean, I'll. I'll avoid the Constitution at all costs, again, when it comes to, yeah. um, you know, killing, uh, again, a U.S. citizen abroad. I get Spying it. on Americans. Know? Yeah. Exactly. Indiscriminately. That's that yeah. Constitution doesn't matter in that regard. You it's just right. sad and pathetic. Well, I want to say that. I say saying, that a lot these days. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just all the more true. I mean, there's just too many examples right now. Um, I wanted to say before we say anything else, if you're watching on YouTube, Send us a super chat question. We can answer a couple of questions before we go off in a few minutes. Um, but uh, yeah, no, and that's the thing where like the left, you know, obvi- you know, I would hope that most people on the left would want this, the Democrats to win the Senate races in Georgia, if for only the fact that we can then say when Biden has no Democratic control, yeah. exactly that we can say no excuse. Yeah, no, it's not. It's McConnell. It's not the Republicans. It's not like, you know, and like, you know, the, it'll be the same structural forces either way, which is that like most of these politicians are severely curtailed by what the business community wants in any of this. But at the same time, like we can expose that so much better when the party that supposedly yeah. represents working people actually technically does have the power to implement their agenda so are you saying we can heighten the contradictions kale uh one one that we can yes make a sharper sharper break with liberalism with the with the shit libs dude uh that's what we gotta do break with the shit libs um break with the shit libs uh we have a question um i guess this is just following up from the interview um eclectic miscellaneous eclectic miscellaneous asking us Great show again. Could social media be compared to alcohol? It can be fun to use at the right times and in moderation, but harmful if yeah. it's misused and abused. Definitely. I think Amber Frost kind of jokingly makes that makes a, a, a even more aggressive point, where it's like it's more like meth. <laughs> and she says that she has like a friend. She tells the story of how she has a friend who does like meth like once a year and can handle it and without cleans her addicted. whole house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And can't get addicted. Um, and certain people, like, I think I personally am constitutionally, like, well built for social media that I, I, it doesn't like, it doesn't like frustrate me too much. Like, I don't get like angry if I see the bad tweet and I can't stop thinking about it all day. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. But I, I see other people where I'm like, dude, you really got to log off. Like, you really have a problem. Uh, Yeah. You know, I'm not saying I don't he, overuse it or anything like that, but it doesn't like it doesn't affect my mood, I guess. You know, so it's I mean, everything I, it's a muscle that you have to exercise because I think most people can get there. And luckily, I've gotten there. So, you know, I'll 
I've learned the art of saying something that I believe wholeheartedly, but might be provocative, like something regarding Tulsi Gabbard. And we all know what happens if you say anything negative about Tulsi Gabbard on Twitter. Um, all of her cultish supporters like come after you. And so my favorite thing to do is like do the tweet and then log off, like have fun. I'm not going to see any of it. And if I do, you know, like it's fine. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't get under my skin, but again, like, it does get super toxic and it does, it, it's a time suck. And what I loved about the interview um, was just this point about like journalists, for instance, um, relegating the actual reporting and research and instead focusing all their time and energy on building this persona on social media. And yeah. so that building that persona, unfortunately, is ridiculously important now. It's, it's, yeah. they may, People make decisions about whether you're going to get a job based on that online persona. But that literally takes up all of your time. To do it properly, that takes up all your yeah. time. You can't actually do the reporting that you're hired right. to do. You can't do both things at the same time. I'll go days without logging onto Twitter or any social media because I literally don't have the capacity to do it. Either I'm going to sacrifice the content that I'm researching for the Young Turks or for this show, or I'm going to build the stupid online persona, which is, by the way fluffed up anyway it's all fluffed up bullshit right people don't know my personal life they don't like it's just i if hate they it. only I hate, knew i hate that part of shit it. you were really into anna they only knew <laughs> <laughs> and also like i want to we have such little time for like such little free time or such little time to enjoy with our loved ones and i want to be in the moment like i want to be present and so you're pressured to like share those parts of your life online. And I hate that as well. Like I don't take pictures of my food and I don't go out of my way to like take pictures of where I'm at or like what I'm doing. And like, Ooh, look at how, look at how exciting my life is. Like, no, it, I want to enjoy my so-called exciting life. Like I want that to be a part of a little slice of my privacy and, and what I enjoy. I don't, I don't want to constantly be thinking about my brand. You get what I'm saying? I think that's the best way to describe it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And people, I mean, and like what you're saying with when you have so little time throughout your day, throughout your week, that you we're social creatures. We need that kind of social interaction. And so like we end up posting things, especially now because maybe things we shouldn't post, maybe things we should, but whatever. But like we, we do this because like we need other people. And, and if anything, mm -hmm. I think, you know, to be, if we ever get to, to see the day where we have socialism and as a socialist, I would like to see that day. But if we get there, like, I can't imagine social media making the journey with us. Like, yeah. why would you be on social media when you have so much more time? If you're working only a couple hours a day, only a few hours a week, you know, like maybe you're doing your two, your two hours for the, for your 10 hour work week or whatever. And, uh, cause we still got stuff to do stuff still has to run, but you know, yeah. uh, in your, in your worker owned firm, uh, where, you know, you're guaranteed healthcare and job security as a, as a, well, national right, or maybe hopefully in the future also like international, Global. right. That, you know, yeah. we're thinking about like the pandemic and the need to like, you know, think about, uh, you know, global politics, not just national politics, but regardless, that's a whole nother tangent. But the point being that like, um, why would you end up, why would you be on social media for all that other time? And you can be developing 
uh, skills that are, are meaningful and interesting and you can fish. And, right. Yeah. You, you got, you want to say the phrase? You want to do it, Nando? No, you do it. I, you, you interjected me. Come on. You got well, it. Well, it's like the, the March phrase, the, the fucking, uh, you know, like to, to hunt or to fish or to. Uh, All right. Let like, me do uh, it. You do it better. I mean, uh, you're the fucking smarty pants, man. <laughs> Um, it's just like, I, I know a lot of just stuff. I know a lot of like data points, but I can't remember names for, for the life of me. Like I am like, yeah, it's, it's, I'll sit there for like an hour trying to remember someone's name, but I can like paraphrase like everything they've written or something. But, um, uh, but the, the Marx quote that you're thinking of, it's kind of the earlier Marx is a little more, this is like idealistic kind of like. Wouldn't it be great if we had like a really better world, guys? Marx and and he's like season one, season yeah, one of it's Marx. season one, season one of Marx, <laughs> where, where he's like, you know, uh, we should live in a world, you know, like basically if we change the social structure, we could live in a world where, uh, you know, you fish in in the morning, or you 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 tend the garden in the morning, you fish in the afternoon, um, you debate in the evening, all without ever becoming a farmer, a fisherman and right. uh, a debater or whatever that like you have a full fulfilling life and that you're not kind of stuck in one thing that capitalism says, yeah, that's your job. And you do that every single day. And uh, if you're not doing it fast enough, uh, we might just get rid of you. Cause yeah, whatever. We don't need you. Like you were the, <laughs> you were basically an extension of the machine for us. Yeah. So that reminds me of, um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it, but it's the fire movement. Um, and the whole idea behind it is to like retire as early as possible. And so, um, live a very simple life, maybe even live in a tiny house, um, you know, uh, and save everything you, as much as you possibly can, obviously you can't save everything you make and then invest it in the markets, invest, invest, invest. And hopefully, and this is for a lot of people, it's not realistic, but the whole idea is. Our lives suck. We work all day. We're not getting the most out of it. Maybe if we're lucky, we can work really, really hard now and save as much as we possibly can, invest it in the markets and retire a little earlier so we can do all the things that you mentioned, um, uh, Kale, or that Mark's mentioned, right? Uh, Because we all have interests. We all, you know... I know for me personally, like I want want to learn how to be a carpenter. I I don't necessarily want to work as a carpenter, but I love... I mean... Yeah, like Jesus Christ. And like my grandparents, like my both my grandpas um, were carpenters. And I don't know if it's in my blood, but I just I love woodworking and I don't have the time to take to go to a wood shop and take woodworking classes. And I want to just be able to do things that I'm interested in without worrying about whether it's an investment in my yeah. future or if it's going to help with my livelihood. I just like saws, man. I just want to go and like, you know, saw some um, shit. I want to saw. I want to chop some you shit. Want to cut I want to saw some shit. Yeah, yeah I want to cut, cut some wood. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm getting a. I'm getting word from our boss, Boscar, that that's not in your brand. So. <laughs> it, oh, okay, okay. Sorry, Boscar. I got to think yeah. about it. I got to think about my brand. You're right. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think that I think that we humans, you know, we have that element of curiosity, and it's. I just feel like we're constantly being propagandized to ignore that part of us, right? Because yeah. we got to be productive and I productive for the people that we're building empires for. And it's, yeah, yeah it's just and, not and right. 
the crazy thing to me is that we've we've kind of we've kind of gone backwards on that front in a way. Like I was, <clears throat> this is a kind of a tangent, but I was listening to uh, a podcast about the about the white stripes. There's like a white there's like a white stripes origin story podcast out there. It's pretty good. It's called Striped. Um, but they talk about how uh, they talk about the, the the music scene in Detroit um, in the 1960s, and one of the one of the points that they make is that because there were so many good unionized uh, auto manufacturing jobs there that a lot of people could afford a very comfortable middle class life um, without, you know, working all day and all night. And that they had time to, uh, you know, buy their kids uh, guitars and even really nice ones and have, play music with them you know like they, they they were describing a world which existed to some degree and kind of no longer exists you know like i mm-hmm. i when I, I studied music in college and i was a really good guitar player in college and i've lost i've lost a lot of it like i can still play and i can still like you know fake it pretty well but like i've lost so much of my ability because i've spent my life and my time working all day and all night like I, I i am kind of a workaholic in some ways um and uh so yeah i mean it's uh it there there was a we've gone backwards on that front in some ways which is which is the the distressing thing well for sure for definitely. you good news for you nando because a super chat uh from torches and pitchforks is asking i want to see nando play interstate love song live next week so it's now part of your work you now have to do this. Bosker, I'm going to check in with Bosker. Uh, you know, I, I, yeah. <laughs> if Bosker says it, then maybe. But <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, like we'll think about it. I'll think about it. All right. Um, so you don't really have any more questions, but there's a couple of those super, super chats that I can read out just because they were nice. Yeah, yeah. They were very nice to us. Um, but LJ said, just a shout out. Great show today. Also appreciate Anna's commentary in Thursday's post game. It totally channeled the vision of Michael Brooks. Keep on keeping on. Hell yeah. Um, Thank you. Yeah. And Jennifer that, says... You, you have no idea how much that one means to her. Well, yeah, it, it does. It means a lot to me. Um, I'm not going to lie. I went back... I went back and listened to only like the beginning of it. And my tone... You're, is, you're too good. I'm full of rage. I'm full of rage. Because I just... Anyway, um, I wish that I was a little more calm in expressing that message. But uh, yeah, anyway. But thank you. That comment means a lot. Yeah. Um, You've definitely, I mean, honestly, (laughs) just from my perspective over the course of the show, like we've all gotten a little bit of Michael in us now. And I've seen Mm -hmm. it definitely in you and in your political perspective and and the way that you articulate things. So um, thanks for that super chat. Uh, I also agree. Um, and, uh, Jennifer says, this was a great episode. Thank you all for your work. Um, thank you, Jennifer. I, yeah. I also just wanted to say, um, cause I heard from one of our moderators, uh, the, cause on YouTube, we have a, a live, we have moderators. Moderator. We do have some moderators. Oh my to, God. Nice. That's cool. Yeah. Just to, uh, you know, to keep the peace. Um, nice. The mods, baby. Shout out to the, the peace mods. officers. Shout out to the mods. Yeah. UN peacekeepers. <laughs> we have the best mods. We have the, of course, I know that. Um, but one of them, uh, one of our mods, Autumn Leaves, uh, recently lost a family member, and so we wanted to extend oh. our condolences. Uh, I'm sorry to, to hear that. And we wish you all the best with your family, and and hope you know we, uh, yeah, you're you're in our thoughts. Yeah, sending you yeah. love. Um, so that I yeah, a little bit of a dour ending there, but um, 
but I'm glad that we got to say that and um, you know uh, I guess any other thoughts any last thoughts I mean I, I just want to tell the audience that um, that I love them <laughs> it's such it's such a positive audience and um, I'm really grateful for this show I'm grateful for the conversations we have and um, you know I think primarily I'm grateful for what the type of format that we're uh, doing this show in, where we're able to have these long form discussions and uh, go in depth on various issues that we think matter, but haven't gotten the attention that they deserve. It's not the type of format that's um, easy to monetize. And so, um, you know, my only ask is for you guys to help share this message uh, to get more people to listen to it, to watch it. Um, please subscribe to Jacobin. If you haven't already subscribed to the magazine, subscribe to the magazine because it's absolutely fantastic. Help support us because um, honestly, without you and without your support, uh, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing. So um, thank you for your, all your kind messages. Thank you for your super chats and thank you for your support. Thank you. Yeah. All right. I'll let you All guys right. close it, but thank you too. Thank you, Kale. All right. Thanks, Kale. All right. Well, I think um, we went a little long today. I, I can't think of anything else I want to touch on today. But um, again, I just want to thank you guys. Thank you, Nando. Hopefully you get your guitar ready um, to play some songs for us next week. You can talk to Boshkar. That's fine. I mean, I, if you want to use Boshkar as an excuse, I get oh, it. Yeah, I will. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, uh, Nando's incredibly we'll talented. I've seen some of your videos. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, but for everyone else, um, thank you for watching and have a fantastic weekend. We'll see you next week. Thank you.